Do you think murder is wrong? How about rape? How about genocide? Do you believe that wiping out an entire group of people is wrong? I see, I've already heard the yes. I've seen a lot of people answer. I think almost everyone would agree. Yeah, that's wrong. How do you justify your answer? What makes you say murder is wrong? What makes you say rape is wrong? What makes you say very definitively? I mean, there was no one here that was like, well, let me think about this for a little bit. I need to, just a second, Aaron, I need to think about this one. You know, there's some gray area in our life where when we're asked a moral question, sometimes we're like, man, that's a good one. Let me, let me think for a little while. Everyone was very, boom, it's wrong. But how did you come to that conclusion? Why? What, what's the driving force behind your conclusion that rape, murder, genocide is wrong? Most of us here would turn to a moral authority and say, well, because God said so. God has written it in our heart. He has created this world with a moral principle. And everybody knows, because of that moral principle that God created this world with, everybody knows that rape, murder, and genocide are wrong. But without that moral authority telling us, without that moral authority that created us to believe that, how could we justify our answer? I would say we really couldn't. Without a moral authority, we become the moral authority, and our hearts can twist morality in an amazing way. We become moral gymnasts. And we can see throughout history, entire cultures becoming moral gymnasts. We've seen the genocide of people. And you know, most of those cultures that committed that genocide didn't wake up and say, I'm going to do an evil act today. What they did was they justified their act. They would say something along the lines of, you know, the world has very limited resources. And because the world has limited resources, we need to make sure that those resources go to the people that are really going to use them. And, and we need to make sure that, that there are certain ethnicities that are better than other ethnicities, and those ethnicities should hold the resources, while those other inferior ethnicities should probably, in fact, we might even be doing them a favor by killing them off, because they're just going to live miserable lives anyway. A Supreme Court judge once said, three generations of imbeciles is enough, and he used it to sterilize a woman. Oh, our evil hearts can do moral gymnastics. My evil heart can do moral gymnastics. Which is why we need a moral authority. And I would go one step further. You know, without this appeal to a moral authority, we become a moral authority, but I'd go even one step further and I'd say we were created to serve or to submit to a moral authority. So when we as a culture start turning from God as our moral authority, throwing off the shackles, as some would say, of a God, 
as a moral authority, we begin to create another or search for another moral authority. I'm sure you can already start thinking of a moral authority that our culture is starting to submit to. But the problem with any moral authority besides God is that authority is all subjective and it changes. So we see today as we become more and more secular, we start to appeal to science as a moral authority. But the problem, I love science. Let me, let me back up. I love science. Science can tell us a whole lot about how this world operates. In fact, science has made us more efficient killers. But science can't give us the why. Science can't give us the morality. Science, science can make us efficient killers, but it can't tell us whether killing is good or evil. And yet, as we throw off the shackles of God's moral authority, we start to appeal to science as a moral authority. And we look to the science. But it's constantly changing. And the moral authority that's not rooted in God's moral authority will always be changing. That's why we need God's moral authority. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we turn to Psalm 96. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 is another one of these magisterial psalms that we've been looking at these last few weeks as we look at summer in the Psalms. We've got next week, and then we'll change course and start studying another topic. But Psalm 96 is a magisterial, meaning it talks about God as king. God has authority in this world. So let's go ahead and read it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the, all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So Psalm 96 is another one of these magisterial songs and it has three different exhortations or encouragements to praise. So we're going to look at three different encouragements to give God glory, to worship Him, and then along with that will be three reasons why. Now one of the things about these reasons is they're very similar to the encouragement. So we're going to hear this 
pray, give this praise to God, sing about how great he is. Well, why should we sing about how great he is? Well, because he's great. That's why we sing about how great he is. So, that's good. so it, it's going to be very similar here, but let's go ahead and dig in. It starts off with, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. So last week we had uh, this heartfelt joy. Make a heartfelt noise to God. You know, this, uh, this idea that you can shout to God because he has, uh, there's this emotional reaction to just have a heartfelt shout to God. This isn't that. This is singing to God. Singing is, and music and songs uh, play an important part. I believe God has structured humanity where music plays an important part in our lives. Some of us are less musically inclined, others are more musically inclined, but there's, there's a whole spectrum of music out there that can appeal to our emotion. There's funny songs. Uh, my grandpa just loved funny songs. He grew up, you know, World War II, uh, Great Depression, and so he before radio, he, he memorized just a lot of songs. And they, there were songs that would appeal to this like funny side and songs that would appeal to emotion. I can remember, and there's something about songs also that just make us remember things easier. I mean, I can recite lyrics from uh, horrible, horrible songs on the radio that I never even owned, but you know, I'd hear it a couple times on the radio and I can still recite those same lyrics today. Whereas just quoting Bible verses, I've got to really work at that. But if I put those Bible verses to song, all of a sudden it's much easier to memorize. So I can remember these songs that my grandpa used to sing, and one of the funniest ones was Johnny Verbeck. Has anybody ever heard Johnny Verbeck? Uh, it's, there once was a Dutchman. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it, not sing it, because trust me, you don't want me to sing it. Uh, <laughs> So there once was a Dutchman, his name was Johnny Verbeck. He specialized in sausages and sauerkraut and speck. And one day, he invented a sausage machine. Now the neighbors, cats, and dogs will never more be seen. I'll be grand of sausages in Johnny Verbeck's machine. It goes on for quite a while, but, but it's a funny song, and it's lighthearted, and it gives us this, like, you know, this feeling of laughter. But there's other songs that can bring in deeper emotion as well. I can remember other songs. Well, I can remember specifically Jen, who had a rough time with her dad. There were, there were, some, uh, there were some rough moments in her relationship with her dad. And she heard this song by Kelly Clarkson. And as she had this emotional reaction, and she started to cry, and I'm not, this, I'm not one of those people that's huge into music, and so she, she shows it to me, and I'm like, oh, great. And she's like, no, Aaron, stop and listen. And I finally stopped, and I listened, and I could see why this song meant so much to her. My guess is there are songs that you can think of that have played a huge role into your life where when you think about it, it brings up and it stirs emotion in you. God has wired us with appreciation of music, and, and that music would play a part in our lives. And there's a reason why he says that we should sing to God. Sing to the Lord. You know, when I think about those lyrics from the 90s, 
that I don't want to think about anymore, that, that I know are just horrible lyrics, one of the ways that I combat that is I sing worship. I sing worship in my head. And it often happens as I'm riding my mountain bike, and you know, when I'm riding my mountain bike, I want to pray, but then all of a sudden, this like horrible lyric from the 90s will start popping in my head. I'm like, why is that in my head? And so how do I get that out of my head? I sing worship. So there's this encouragement here for us to sing, and God knows that it is good for us to sing. It's good for our hearts to sing worship towards him. It helps redirect our lives. So it's sing to the Lord a new song. Now notice that this isn't sing to the Lord an oldie. Now, the psalmist isn't saying that we should never sing old songs or old psalms. He's not saying that we can't sing hymns. But there is a commandment here for us to sing a new song. There is a commandment here that says it is good to sing new songs of worship to God. And I will say, I think the reason for that is because God is constantly doing new things. God is constantly reworking things in our lives. He's changing my heart. He's changing your heart. And if we never sang new songs, we wouldn't remind ourselves of these new things. So all of these old hymns that we love, those were once new songs. New songs about the things God has done. Amazing Grace was written because a guy had been in the slave trade and he realized that God had given him amazing grace and he changed his life. And so he sings about God's amazing grace because God had done something new in his life. That's why we sing new songs. Because we need to remind ourselves that God didn't just work in the past. God is working here, today, in our lives. New songs help us remember that. So there is a command to sing new songs. Um, I think it's still important to sing the old songs because it's also important to remember the story behind Amazing Grace. So sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord all Bless his name. Bless means to uh, sing uh, praises to him. Uh, Words that affirm who he is. I think it's important for us to make that mark that we are to, to do this to God, to sing a blessing to God. And oftentimes I think we get confused, and I do this in my prayer. I still... I do this, although I, I understand it, but I still, when I pray, especially before mealtime, I'm like, dear Lord, I pray that you would bless this food. Well, the Old Testament saint never asked God to bless the food. The Old Testament saint blessed God for the food. Meaning he praised God because God provided the food for him. But I still have this bad habit of saying, God, just bless this food. Instead of saying, God, I just thank you so much for this food. You are an amazing God. And that's what the encouragement here is to do, is to bless the name, talk about how amazing God is. Tell of his salvation from day to day. So here we have, how, what are we going to sing? This is the, the aspects of what we're going to sing. And part of that is his salvation. For the Old Testament saint, they would have thought about Exodus. That would have been the first thought of salvation. But then they would have also thought about this whole series through Judges. So in Exodus, you know, they, they are freed from captivity. They are freed from being slaves. They go into the promised land and they turn their backs on God. And so God raises up a nation to conquer them. Well, eventually they turn back to God, and then God raises up a judge who conquers the other nation. 
So God is providing a way of salvation for them. So they would have thought about the the book of Judges, but they also would have thought about Assyria. And when they were an established nation and how Assyria was this monster country, this huge nation that was going around and just absolutely wiping out other countries. And they made their way and they, they devoured the north and they come down to Jerusalem and Jerusalem, this tiny little city, that stands no chance against Assyria. And they set up a siege. And during this siege, people start to die because they begin to starve. But the Assyrians are living well on the outside of the gates. Until one morning, and I love the way the Old Testament puts it, one morning they woke up dead. Meaning, some of them woke up. But most of them were dead. And they head back to Assyria, defeated by this little nation that God was saving. So they would have thought about all that. And it's important for them to sing about God's salvation because they're in exile now. During this time, they're out in Babylon. They've been defeated. So they want to remind themselves about how God works. That God hasn't given up yet. And for us, we can think about Christ and what Christ has saved us from. So we're supposed to sing, we're supposed to declare of his salvation from day to day. It's not just a once a year type of thing. It's not just a once a month or once a week type of thing. Every day we are to tell, we are to sing of his salvation, of what he has done in our life. And it's so important for us because we have really bad memories, unless it comes to really bad 90s songs. Then I can remember that for the rest of my life. But for the most part, my memory is horrible. And we so easily forget what God has done in our life. It doesn't take much for us to forget of what God has done for you. So we need to sing about it, to remind ourselves day after day after day. Otherwise, we will forget. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among the peoples. And so here he is. He's addressing Israel specifically at this moment. And what is Israel supposed to do? They're supposed to go out to the nations, meaning to the different nation states that are surrounding them, and sing about the glory of God. And then he he makes it even more specific. Go to the peoples. The peoples here mean ethnic groups. So within one nation, there are several ethnic groups. You're not just supposed to go to that nation, but go to the people within that nation. Go to all the different ethnicities in that nation. Don't leave any ethnicity out. So when we think about maybe America, it would be go to the United States and start to preach the gospel in the United States. But don't just go and preach in Boston. Go to the West. Go to the Front Range. Go to the Navajo Nation. Go to the Apache. Go to Kansas. Go to all of the ethnicities within the United States. And then we've got the reason why. So we start the reason why in in verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Once again, sing about how great God is. Why do we sing about how great God is? Well, because he's great. He's greatly to be praised. And then he, he clarifies a little bit more on why he's greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So he's writing to the Israelites in the midst of a pagan nation. This pagan nation worships all these other gods. And what the psalmist is getting at here is that God above all these other gods, 
God is to be feared. This word fear means tremble, but also to hold in reverence. These other gods, you don't need to hold them in reverence. We need to hold Yahweh in reverence. We need to have reverence for Yahweh, and we need to stand in awe of Yahweh and tremble before him. We don't need to tremble or hold the other idols in reverence. And then he clarifies why we need to do that, or why Yahweh is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Now there's a little wordplay going on that I think is really neat that we miss in the English. First of all, the word idols here doesn't actually exist in the Hebrew. But the word gods here for, in Hebrew is Elohim. Most, people, most of you know that, Elohim. But uh, what's interesting is worthless is Elohim. You can hear that similarity there, right? El is the, is the foundational word for God. Elohim means worthless. Or uh, really, literally, it means of not. Meaning that these gods don't actually exist. Is what he's really saying. So these other gods that these other people worship, they don't even exist. They're not real. Yahweh is real. The idols that are surrounding you right now, they don't even exist. They're simply man-made creations for man to try to manipulate the world around them. That's what those idols are all about. Just simple manipulation. But they're worthless. They don't really exist. But, so now he's going to contrast those idols, those uh, Elohim, worthless of not things, with Yahweh. But the Lord, and we've talked about this before, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. But Yahweh made the heavens. These other idols, these other gods that that you worship, They're worthless. They don't do anything. But God made the heavens. Think of the stars and the planets out there. Yahweh did that. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And what this is really getting at is that these characteristics, splendor, majesty, strength, beauty, they're so much a part of him that they overflow out of him. So much so that they go before him and they fill up his dwelling place. There's so much a part of him that anywhere he is, these characteristics, splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty, begin to fill that area up. And the best way I can describe it is actually with, these are good characteristics. The only thing I can think of is a bad characteristic, and it comes from when I was in wrestling in high school. So when I was in wrestling in high school, we would practice for two, three hours. There was about 100, sometimes 150 guys in this wrestling room. Some guys would take pride in not washing their practice clothes for the entire season. And we would always, people would always be trying to lose weight. So we would keep that wrestling room in between 90 and 100 degrees. So we'd be drenched in sweat. Yeah, I see some of the faces already. So we'd be drenched in sweat, and then we'd all go into the locker room. A hundred plus guys, drenched in sweat. Some of us haven't washed our clothes in 
months in that tiny little locker room, and the stench would fill that locker room up, so much so that it would actually begin to go out of the door. And every now and then you could hear a girl that would make the mistake of walking in front of that door, and she would just scream in disgust because it stank so bad. And I can even remember one guy who, he was one of those guys that took pride in not washing his clothes And I remember jogging in front of him once for warm-ups. And, you know, when you're jogging behind someone, you typically smell them. And you're like, well, yeah, because I'm, like, in his dust, right? But when you're jogging in front of someone, you don't expect to smell them. But his stench was so strong that it was going out before him. And although I was in front of him and jogging, I could smell him from behind me. That's how bad of a stink it was. It was so strong, so powerful and overwhelming that it would go in front of him as he would jog. Now that's disgusting. These characteristics of God are not. They're amazing. They're things that we should be in awe of. His splendor, his majesty, his strength, his beauty. They're so overflowing overpowering and overflowing from him that they go before him and they fill up the area that he dwells in. That is why we are to worship him. That is why we are to sing about him from day to day. And then he continues with the next exhortation to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. So, O families of the people here, he's moving, it's a reference to all ethnicities of the world is what he's really getting at. Every single people group, every single group you could possibly think of that dwells within the world. So he's moving from just Israel to go out into the world to now he's encouraging all of the world. This term ascribe doesn't mean just simply recognize, but to give. So it's not recognize God's glory and strength, but to give your glory and your strength to God. Glory here means to magnify or put the spotlight on God. So anytime the spotlight comes to you, you should be deflecting that to God, saying it's not me. It's recognition that anything I do that I do well, it's because of God. I can do nothing well without God equipping me to do that. And it's that recognition. So anytime someone wants to give me praise, it's a, it's a reflection of the spotlight back to God. And all of my strength goes to him as well. So all of my strength, anything that I do, I do for God. And then ascribe or give to the Lord the glory due his name. And glory here means to give him honor. The honor due his name. And this is a direct reference back to what is his name found in Exodus. We translate it as I am. Meaning he is the self existing one. He doesn't need anything to exist. You and I, we could come up with a whole list of things that we need to exist. God is self-existing. And so for that reason, he is due honor. 
And he continues this exhortation. Bring an offering and come into his courts. This idea of offering here is to pay tribute to a sovereign one. That's the idea of the offering here. So this offering that you're going to bring, when you recognize that someone is sovereign over you, you would bring in those, in the, those days, you would bring an offering to, to pay a tribute to them. And when you would do that, you would be invited into the court. And the, it would be as if the sovereign says, I recognize your submission to me. You are allowed to come into my courts now. So I think we need to stop and talk a little bit about sovereign because we're bringing an offering to God, recognizing him as sovereign over us. And oftentimes I think there's a miss... We miss the mark when it comes to sovereignty within Christianity because too often we think what sovereignty means is God is a micromanager. That he's just making everything happen by controlling every single person, and we're all just a bunch of robots doing exactly what God has foreordained. And that's not what sovereignty means. What sovereignty means is that he has the final authority. So when you think about a sovereign nation, that means that that nation doesn't have to answer to any other nation. That nation can control the laws within itself. It calls the shots for its own people. It's a sovereign nation. It doesn't have to answer to any other nation. A sovereign king would be the the final authority in a land. That king can make the laws. That king can change the laws. Thankfully, we don't live in a nation with a sovereign king. We have laws that no single person is above. But that's what a sovereign king means. So what does a sovereign God mean? It doesn't mean a micromanager. A sovereign God means a God who has the final authority. There is no one above God. God doesn't have to answer it to anyone. God is it. He makes the laws. He enforces the laws. He is the final authority. That's what it means to pay tribute to God, to come into his courts and and pay tribute saying, God, I recognize you as the sovereign one. You are the final authority. That's what he's encouraging us to do. Recognize God as the final authority. And then he continues, Worship the Lord in, in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So the term worship means to bow in submission to. We overplay this song and we say, what do we do do before the sermon? Oh, we do worship. But really what we mean is we praise God, right? We're singing praises to God. We're going to use words to describe how amazing he is. But worship means to bow in submission to, to live our lives in submission to God. So when we recognize him as the final authority, that should produce in us a willingness to submit to him. To say, God, I've wanted to call the shots. I've wanted to be the final authority in my life, but I recognize I mess things up. You are the final authority, and I will submit my life to you. I will live my life in obedience to you. So we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, and then he gives, tremble before him all the earth. The word earth here is eris, and it means land. So tremble before him, quake before him, all of the land. And this is an introduction to what he's going to get into next with the exhortation. But first, he's going to give us the reason why. So say among the nations, 
the Lord reigns. And this is just a reiteration that the Lord rules. He has the final authority within the universe. And then we get into the reason. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. So, Eris is land, which we translate as earth. World is Tevel. And it kind of more encompasses humanity. So the human world has been established by God. It shall never be moved. And along with that, he says, it shall be judged. Humanity, the peoples, once again that ethnicity, will be judged. God, the final authority on morality, will judge the people, will judge humanity. Judge means to administer justice. So he is going to administer justice with equity. Equity is, I think, kind of a catchphrase, maybe an overused word these days. What, what the Bible speaks of when it means equity is it means fairness. That God will judge the world with fairness or righteousness. So he's going to distribute justice according to fairness. And we might say the fairness is according to his moral standard. Once again, without having God as the supreme moral authority, then the moral standard continually changes. What was thought of as evil 20 years ago is now thought of as righteous today. And what was thought of as righteous 20 years ago is now thought of as evil according to some people today. Because man's moral standard is constantly changing. But God's moral standard is not changing. He has created the world with a moral standard that is everlasting because He is everlasting. And so He will judge the world. He will distribute or dispense justice according to the fairness of His moral standard. So we need to recognize that without God, there is no equity. We talk a lot about equity, but, but if moral standards are constantly changing, then there can be no real equity. The only way the world can have true equity is with God. So we have to trust in His administering justice with His fairness. So some people say, well, you know, what about those people? And I've heard this uh, as an, ex, uh, an attack on the gospel. What about those people in those lands that never get to hear the gospel? Are they just going to go to hell? And I'll say this. It's important for us to try to share the gospel with them. But I trust God in all of it. So it is, I think, perfectly acceptable for us uh, we need to try to find answers to every question, but it is perfectly acceptable at times to say, God has perfect moral standards, and He is perfectly fair, and I trust Him to make that decision, not myself. So when somebody asks me about so-and-so going to heaven, 
my typical answer is, I trust God. Can I say for sure whether or not someone is going to go to heaven? No. But I trust God. My trust isn't in my comprehension of the gospel or in your comprehension of the gospel. My trust and faith is in God. Now that doesn't negate the command to share the gospel. What it does is put our trust in the right place. Not my communication skills, but in God. So I trust God in it all. And then he gives us the final exhortation. And he has addressed Israel to sing worship. Then he addresses all the peoples of the world to sing worship. And now he gets to all of creation. So he says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord. So there's this exhortation for not just Israel, not just all the people of the world, but the entire creation to begin to praise God. And he gives us the final reason, and this is the crux of the psalm. All of the psalm is leading up to this last part, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. This is why we sing, because he comes to judge, and he comes to judge with true equity. He is, he is the final moral authority. The buck stops with him. There is no changing moral authority. It all comes to, to Jesus coming. And he came once already. And that was to redeem the earth. That was to redeem us. But he will come again, and when he comes again, it will be to judge the world, to judge the people. And every single one of us have shaken our fist in rebellion against God at some point in our life We said, forget you, God, I want to be the final moral authority for my life. And for this reason, every single one of us deserves death. But God, being a God who loves us with such a great love, He came and He paid the price. So up until that point, we were to be judged for death. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ, He clothes us with His righteousness. Meaning He covers us with His righteousness so that when He comes to judge, we will be seen as holy and just and righteous. Not because of our works, but because of Him. But if you haven't Put your faith and trust in Christ. You will be judged based upon your works. And that rebellion that you have had against God for wanting to be your own moral authority, you will be judged by. And then he gives us how he will judge. For he will judge the world. He will dispense justice in righteousness. And the people's in his faithfulness. So righteousness is that which conforms to a moral standard. God's moral standard. He will judge the world based on his moral standard. Not my moral standard. Not our culture's moral standard. His moral standard. And he will, he will be fair or faithful in that moral standard. Meaning, he's not going to try to pull a quick one on us. God's not out there trying to pull a fast one on you just to send you to hell. 
He's laid his moral standard out. He's written it down so that we can understand it. And he has laid it out so that we know the only way we can be saved from judgment is to put our faith and trust in him. He's not going to pull a fast one. He's going to be faithful to the principles that he has created this world with. So, do you believe rape is wrong? Do you believe murder is wrong? How about genocide? How do you justify your answer? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will help us to recognize who you are and who we are, what you have done, and how you have covered us in your righteousness and your holiness, that you have made us justified. You have declared us to be washed, to be pure. Lord, we pray that you will help us to sing those praises to the world, to recognize that you are coming again to judge, that you will dispense judgment according to your moral standard. But we can avoid that judgment and have eternal life by putting our faith and trust in you. Help us to share that message to the world. In your name we pray. Amen.